it's look it's not my fault he tries to eat people so he needs no to i get i mean his vaccines and his preventative care and his dental work and all of that involves three different anti-anxiety slash sedation drugs before the actual general anesthesia occurs i mean if you can't make your own neurotransmitters store-bought is fine he's gonna be really wonky for the next 24 hours but it's yeah but you drug your dog out of love. I drug my dog out of love. And not everyone can say that. Nope. Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milena. Hey, guys. Today, we're going to learn about an artist who was inspired by Mita Warkfuller and taught Elizabeth Catlett. Also, we're going to take a look into the first woman physician in the United States. Oh, oh, is it Elizabeth Blackwell? Damn straight. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. I had to call up the Elizabeth Blackwell Planned Parenthood fairly recently. I'd be like, hey... How long is my IUD good for? Because this Trump presidency is it's still going. <laughs> I got some concerns. When do I have to do swapsies? Because I'm getting a little worried. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that's the only reason why I, I, I know why she's the first female physician. That's fair. Gay Planned Parenthood. She, oh, man, you're going <laughs> to. You just tied something in for me. So thank you for that. You're going to learn how funny that is in a second. Yeah. <laughs> all right i'm intrigued yeah so why don't why don't you go first okay all right sounds good so i'm not saying that you should listen to episode three and four to get the significance of who i'm about to do but you guys should totally listen to episode three and four to fully understand who i'm about to do just you should listen to all of them because we are officially up to the double digits episode 10 baby what oh oh yeah yeah is episode 10. Episode 10! And I'll have you guys know, we have more listeners than just our moms. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wait, your mom listens too? Well, she's listened to some of it, but <laughs> you guys are amazing for those of you who have been here since episode one. Since episode one. <laughs> That's right. We're still a little baby podcast. Um, yeah. So if you guys haven't listened to episode three and four, you should because they're fun and they're informative and that's what we're all about. Now, I am covering Lois Malou Jones and she is, guess what? Not a sculptor. Haha. I'm so fucking proud of you. I just have to find two not sculptors for the next two episodes <laughs> to meet your request. Uh, we'll see what I can do. So she's an American painter and she primarily did portraits and landscapes and is most well known for painting about the black experience. Now, thankfully, she had a really long life and she's most noted for advancing the recognition of African American art through her own work, through her teaching, and also acting as an international art ambassador. Wait, I didn't know that was a title. <laughs> it's informally a title. <laughs> but yeah, totally a thing. Huh. As I'll go over it, she she was an awesome networker and so she was able to hustle the fuck out of these things so you could legit just like drop her in a different country and she'd come back and be like oh yeah i'm going back next year to do commissions for the president i would really love that kind of skill i would too i don't know what type of 
animal I have to sacrifice and what god <laughs> I need to make a blood oath to because that would come in real handy as an introvert. Oh, man. I mean, that's why I have you as my wing woman for <laughs> all the art shows and openings. I know, man. I have said hi to so many people. And, like, the shocked, hard look on Megan's face when I talk to a complete stranger in a bathroom. Perfection. Okay, no. There's a sense of camaraderie in a woman's bathroom, especially at a certain point where everyone's been drinking and suddenly you're best friends. That's really a thing. And it's lovely. And we need more of that. <laughs> no, it's more like when you go up to a Frenchman after a Marilyn Manson concert and... Um, hey, my mother's listening. Okay. All right. I just... I refer to what I will not mention as pulling a Marilyn Manson. And um, yeah, <laughs> I will never peak that hard in my life ever. <laughs> they don't They don't need to know. They don't. Kissing. They don't. Best so. They don't need to know about it. <laughs> All right. So for our painter, Lois, this week, she was inspired by a certain meet at work, Fuller, who we cover in episode three. Woot. And... There's a lot of themes that Lois builds on from the work of Mita. Um, and she's the artist that had all her work burned down in Philly right. after she re- returned from Paris. And also, Lois worked as an educator, and she taught a certain Elizabeth Catlett. And she's covered in episode four, and she's a sculptor who went down to Mexico during the Cold War and stayed. Bridge between the worlds. Yeah, yeah. I just um, I have a great encyclopedia set of women in history and happened to flip a wooden page, and there she was, and was like, oh, shit. We've covered a few of these people. So between Mita and Elizabeth and Lois, there's lots of overlapping themes and, you know, that kind of shared experience of being African-American woman artist um, in a totally racist United States. So you totally don't have to listen to three and four, but it helps. But you totally, you don't have to. You're fine. Now, Lois was born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1905. Funny enough, like, once again, during the entirety of my research on her, there was one mention of a sibling. What? Just one. What is yeah. this discrimination? I I even spent a whole 10 minutes trying to Google his name and see if I could find anything on him. I couldn't find shit. Oh, no. Yeah. His older brother named John. How much older? I have no idea. What he did? I have no idea. When he died? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if he had a family? Eh. Eh. Was he a painter? I mean, fuck all he could have been. I have no idea. And, you know, I, I like to read and pull stuff from various sources. And again, one source was like, oh, hey, by the way. Now, Lois and her brother, they were born into an upper middle class African-American family. Parents had relocated from New Jersey to Massachusetts. And they did so because it was a little less racist there. And, uh, you know, they'd have better opportunities. Mm-hmm. But New England was less racist than other parts of the country. As a whole, the area offered a lot more for Lois and her brother and her parents, um, a Carolyn Ann Jones and a Thomas Fearlin Jones. Now, her mom, Carolyn, ran her own business as a beautician, which Mita's mom totally did as well. Right. And her dad, Thomas, worked as a building superintendent going to law school at night. And he finally earned his law degree. And later on, Lois says, quote, I think that much of my drive comes from daddy, wanting to be someone, having an ambition. And as we cover with Mita, like the upper class status of her parents exposed Lois to experiences and opportunities that for the time weren't common to the average young black girl in early 20th century America. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until 1918 when Lois was 13 that the first anti-lynching laws were introduced in Congress. 13. 
yeah, the shitty thing about that, though, is that there's still no federal law on the books recognizing lynching as a hate crime. Wait, now? Yeah, because when it was initially introduced in 1918, there was a block of Southern Democrats who opposed it because it passed the House and went to Senate. Senate blocked it. Currently, Kamala Harris, she was one of, I believe, three senators to sponsor a bill. Currently, this was last year, I believe, it passed the Senate, but it's yet to go to the House and to be signed by our lovely 45, Ah. officially recognizing it as a hate crime. It's fucking ridiculous. Now, back in Boston, Lois's grandma is working out on Martha's Vineyard. Oh. Yeah. Never been there. Nope. It's a posh, upper-class resort island. Was then. Still is today. And grandma buys a house in Oak Bluffs. And that was the only town on the island that was welcoming to African-Americans. And because of that, it became one of the best-known and exclusive African-American vacation spots at the time. Aww. Yeah. Grandma worked as like a like a housemaid for a white family. And I mean, hardworking really describes this family. And she saved up and bought a house. And so they'd go there during the summers. And Lois loved it. She fell in love with nature there, saying, quote, the island is greatly responsible for my love of nature and for art as a career. Hmm. Isn't that how most of these artists started out? Yeah. You know, it's funny now that we've we've got a few that we've covered. There's these a lot of these reoccurring themes. And just like the majority, if not all the artists that I've covered, her parents recognized like her artistic talent from a young age and they really fostered it. That's important. Yeah, no, it definitely is. Happy late Mother's Day. Happy early Father's Day. Thank you for your love and support. Yeah, when your child's like, I want to be an artist when I grow up, turn away from them and clutch your heart and think about the kind of little tough financial situation they might be getting into. But hey, hey, they're going to do what they love. Hmm. And so what if you're over 50 grand in student debt and making annually less than half of that? I mean, who cares? I do what I love. I'm an artist, <laughs> damn it. Yeah, whatever. Get that income-based repayment plan. I'll see you guys 25 years when you forgive my loans. <laughs> That's what I tell myself as I try to fall asleep. Thank God for federal student loans. Um, Now, uh, like I said, parents very supportive, and her mom would display her artwork while they were, you know, uh, vacationing on the island. Her, the clothesline in the backyard kind of be- became her first informal gallery. Her mom would hang up her paintings. Aww. And at the age of 17, she had her first solo show there on the island. On the clotheslines? Not on the clothesline. No, at like a formal gallery. I couldn't find out where, but according to a reputable source, she was 17, first solo show on the island. Uh, which reputable source is this? I, You know what? I don't have a little footnote in front of me. <laughs> so I can't tell you. I'm sorry. I just lost part. I just, shit, guys. I went down half a grade right there. Wiki. No, not Wikipedia, damn it. Um, and now, with the draw of Oak Bluffs as a destination for vacationing African Americans, Lois got to meet some really important people there. And one of them was her sculptor, Mita Warwick Fuller. Hey. Uh, she lived outside of Boston, and she was also part of her area's wealthy upper-class society. Right. And while she was on the island, she met Lois, and she encouraged her. Aww. 
yeah, like how cool is that? Later on, one of Lois's early significant works is a painting, The Ascent of Ethiopia, and that's inspired by Mita's 1914 sculpture, The Awakening of Ethiopia. And Mita's work, that was one of the first American sculptures depicting a positive image of a black subject. Huh. So with the support of her family and the opportunities in Boston, Lois received a pretty well-rounded art-centered education growing up, and one that she definitely probably could not have gotten in the South. Right. She was described as, you know, well-off, well-behaved girl, and she had too much going on to get in trouble. Yeah, she had shit to do, art to make. Yeah, I think from the sound of it, like, she was very much an overachiever. That kind of, like, personality, both growing up and then later on in her life, but, I mean, shit, she got, she got shit done. Right. She went to a, a high school focusing on the arts. She received a scholarship to go to the Boston Museum of School of Fine Arts after classes right and it was there she got to meet some really you know important people work under a costume designer and inadvertently contributed designs to the man who's considered the father of american modern dance ted sean and after graduating high school in 1923 she's 18 she gets a scholarship to attend the museum she graduates there with honors with an ma in textile design and she was the school's at the time only black student now, after school, Lois works as a freelance textile designer. She did work for some Boston and New York companies. And her work from the 1920s and 30s, they're bright, they're colorful, um, usually flora-inspired. And her designs are unfortunately completely susceptible to racism. Oh, no. Yeah, she would have a white friend take her work along with theirs when it would come to submitting to the companies. Really? Yeah, I mean, you still, you know, still had to go in person for these things. She would send her work along with her white friend, and there'd be times that all of her work sold, but not her white friends. Oh, no. Yeah, but at the same time, there's no way in hell she would have been able to walk in herself and present that work. Right. Um. So, I, and she kind of uses the same technique later on. She finds ways to kind of circumvent that institutional racism. Now, she'd see her designs being used in high-end shops and in high-end homes. And with the nature of design work, I mean, there's there's no credit to her. She wanted her name to be tied to her work, so she switched to painting. So, at the school that she'd gone to, she approached the director for a job. Um, something that routinely was granted to students like her. And he looked at her and he was like... Lois, we don't have any opportunities here, but have you ever thought about going south to help your people? Oh, oh. Yeah. No. Well, she was a little taken back, to say the least. Wasn't fucking happy. Right. Lois actually did her of her hot second. Going south is exactly what she ends up doing. She's hired to create the art department for a prep school for upper-class African-American students, South Carolina Palmer Memorial Institute. And while she's there, she'd much rather be at Howard University. And that's a historically black college in D.C. that, from its founding in 1867, has been open to all people, regardless of race, of sex. And that's that's really where she wanted to teach. And there's a few people we've covered that did go there, like from episode three with your developmental psychologist, Mammy Phipps Clark. Hey! Yeah. Um, and the job she was aiming for, it was given instead to a James A. Porter. And that might sound familiar because, well, he's the author of Modern Negro Art, um, which was the first comprehensive study of African-American art. But he was also the most influential instructor to Elizabeth Catlett, credited with instilling in her the discipline needed to be an artist. And Lois used her position at the institution to get into Howard. One thing she always did with her teaching and her uh, workshops is inviting other artists to come in and talk and to engage with her students. 
Uh, so while she's in South Carolina, she just, you know, casually invites the founding of Howard's art department to the Institute. <laughs> and like, oh, hey, why don't you come back down and see what I'm doing? And oh, hey, my students just happen to be having a show at the same time. Gee, what a funny little coincidence. <laughs> Again, networking. She she knows how to fucking play it. Right. And apparently, you know, when he came, he was like, we need you at Howard. I want you there in September. So she was all like, fuck yeah, broke her contract and moved up to D.C. to do so. Same. I'd do the same thing. Yeah. And there was a little bit of contention between her and the director of the school. I think in part because what she was doing was so new. Like, they didn't have any art department at all. And the director was like, mm, I don't know what you're doing. And she, I think she was like, well, why the fuck did you hire me yeah. if you don't want me to, to do this? And so Lois felt much better at Howard, and she stayed there for decades. I think she was she was very happy to, to move on, find something better fitted towards her. <laughs> now, at Howard, she instilled the same commitment that she had for her art with her students, telling them, quote, you must love your art as though you were married to it. And she took that really seriously. I mean, she didn't she didn't marry until she was 47. I think in part because she didn't want the expectations of the time in being a wife and being a mother to to get in the way of her art making. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Lois, she was going about her career very differently from Mita. And Mita fell in line with the typical social expectations of being a good wife and being a good mother and being a good black in exemplifying white expectations in order to be accepted. Lois wanted to be taken seriously as an artist, independent from her relationship to a man, independent from her gender, independent from her race. And it was really hard in racially charged, sexist, you know, nine states. And, you know, where women were expected to be passive, Lois was very active. She cultivated a large social network that she pulled from when she needed, you know, help to get ahead. She was very good at self-promotion and also very direct in how she felt about her work. Like, she had no qualms being like, my shit is amazing. Mm-hmm. Which for me, I, I can't imagine doing that. I'm so low-key about my work. I, she, I, she had fucking swagger. She would be like, no shit. My work is amazing. She fucking owned it. Like, well, that's just me. I might just be biased, but I have no idea why you're not more, like, in people's faces about your work. Because I like to think if it's good, I don't have to be. Um, for Lois, putting her at first... I feel like it was a little easier for her because of the work already established within the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, There was a mass movement to identify the intellectual and creative skills of African-Americans during the 1920s and 30s in Harlem, New York City. Uh, Mita's art was a precursor to that, while Lois benefited from those early artists, and she's considered a late Harlem Renaissance artist herself. Okay. Now, she took on teaching at Howard in 1930, at the time she was 25, and over 47 years there, she encouraged over 2,500 students, which included Elizabeth Catlett, too. What? Yeah, making all these connections. Her early artwork, very conventional. You know, she worked in watercolors and charcoals, paintings, uh, did, you know, scenic depictions of the areas around her, like Martha's Vineyard, primarily using nature as her inspiration. The first piece to receive major attention was a charcoal drawing called Negro Youth, and that won an honorable mention in a 1930 competition. And this piece marked a shift from the work done, you know, in the classroom into a more serious personal development of a body of work. Now, the Harmon Foundation of New York, it hosted a competition that would later show her work again. And from this piece, she starts examining what it's like to be Black in America. And that was a major theme of the Harlem Renaissance. During this time, it's when she makes the painting inspired by Mita's sculpture, uh, exhibiting the ascent of Ethiopia at the Harmon Foundation in 1933 at the age of 28. So career-wise, things are picking up. They're going good. 
And, you know, from this point in her late 20s, things are just on the up and up hmm. for decades. Yeah. Like for the rest of her life. Like, again, she's a woman who gets shit done. So constant creative determination with her art, with her teaching, and then later as an informal art ambassador working internationally. Hmm. Now, come 1937, at the age of 32, Lois earns a Rockefeller grant to study art in Paris, and she is so fucking excited. Um... From the initial boarding of the ship, she remarks on how it felt to be, quote, shackle-free. Once she was on that boat, she was treated just like anyone else. I mean, it was considered French soil. And so she had an amazing time. So while she's, you know, over there in France, race didn't matter. But sex kind of did. Oh, yeah. Bit. Yeah. At the academy, she received the grant to attend. Classes, and thus professors, were divided by gender. What? Yeah, because there was someone she really wanted to study with, a professor, but she couldn't because he taught the men. Now, things kind of worked out because she got an interpreter to help her out because her French skills were fairly basic at that point. And she was a great artist. They became quickly, like, really good friends. It was artist Celine to Barry. And for Lois, Celine was, quote, a very fine artist who turned out to be really, like, a sister to me. And she says her family, quote, practically adopted me. That would not have happened, you know, if someone who wasn't white came over from a different country at the same time into America. They would chances are like that kind of open welcoming arms like would not have been as easily reciprocated no yeah which is shitty i mean uh, never know now during her time there she developed a supporting network of artists and she displayed her work in multiple shows you know had a collection of her work printed and being in paris she was you know unsurprisingly inspired by the impressionistic movement she took on plain air painting and markets became one of her favorite places to paint one thing noteworthy she also did large city parks which you know, listing it, you're like, oh, okay, that sounds nice. These are areas that back home in the United States, she would not have been able to have access to. Right. Like she would have been kicked out of just because she was black. Now, while in France, she was exposed to negritude. And it was a French movement stemming from the Harlem Renaissance, really took root in the 1930s and 40s in Paris's black intellectual scene. And the whole movement emphasized ties to Africa, quote, proclaimed the existence of a mythic African soul that was sensitive, sensual, and spiritual. And that was also focused on combating the global oppression of African people. I mean, at that point, every African country except Ethiopia had been colonized. Oh, wow. Every single country except for them. Jesus. Yeah, which is why Mita was doing a sculpture, you know, titled after Ethiopia. That's why Lois did a piece. Because it stood against the symbol against colonialism and, you know, kind of the white man coming in. And this reverence for African heritage is seen in one of Lois's most well-known paintings. The age of 33 in 1938, she did Les Fetishes, an oil painting of an African mask. It is Les Fetishes. It's the fetishes. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah, but more like a like a fetish object. Uh, not like you know like the fun type of fetishes oh damn i got re- i like my ears perked up for a hot second and then never mind i know yeah now this episode i'll see what i can do find <laughs> if i if i can find some kinky bastards for us you guys wait it might take me a little bit if all goes well i might be like welcome to episode 73 i'm following through and doing a kinky bastard <laughs> just like that oh i didn't know you were doing one on me oh <laughs> sorry continue um this fetish painting of not a fun type of fetish it's an oil painting of an african mask and it signified a shift from her that in lois's words if white painters such as picasso and matisse could use african art then she certainly had the right to use it because it was her heritage right yeah like she was like fuck you guys i can own this so after extending her stay um she eventually had to come back to the u.s and you know keep teaching at howard now in france you know she had no issue exhibiting her work but 
back home, good old-fashioned American racism got in her way. And this time in the 1940s, the majority of galleries and art museums did not show black artists' work. Hmm. Now, in 38, her her friend Celine had come to visit. And in 1940, she um, she had her submit in her name, uh, painting for her to the Washington Corian Gallery of Art. It was accepted. And I won a super duper prestigious award, the Robert Woods Bliss Prize for Landscape. She had the mail a certificate and didn't reveal that it was her who had won because they did not allow work from black artists. <sighs> yeah. So just like she had that white friend of hers take her designs in to be submitted, like she used her, her French friend to do the same thing. What did her French friend do? Oh, she did it. She hooked her up. I mean, at this point, they're pretty, they're BFFs. Yeah. She was like, I got you. Now it took the museums more than 50 years to ha- offer a public apology. What? Yeah. I mean, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. They made an effort. And again, unfortunately, like, it's not like they they were the only ones who didn't do that. It was pretty uniform across the board that black work was not welcomed in, you know, traditional art world (laughs) galleries and museums. Now, having worked in France, where Lois said, quote, she forgot she was black, it was a really cruel contrast to being a black woman artist in the United States. Right. And with the influence of Alan Locke, considered poet laureate of the Harlem Renaissance, Lois focused on the racial tensions of being Black of America within her art. She kind of shifted gears a little bit when she came back. And in France, she could make whatever she wanted. You right. Know, but back in the U.S., like, she acknowledged her position to represent repressed people in her art. Right. Like Mita, who confronted lynching in her art, Lois did the same with her piece Mob Victim from 1944. The model she used from the painting was an African-American man who had witnessed a lynching. Wait, what? Oh, he witnessed a lynching? Yeah, like, that, that must have been some pretty heavy shit. And, you know, he was like, oh, you know, this kind of gave her input of what he saw and, you know, how she could better capture that in her painting. Aww. Now, for Lois, she said, quote, I have to paint from within. It might be a black subject, but whatever I do has to be in the direction of my best statement. Right. Excellence. So, you know, collectively, her work is kind of all over the place. She's doing her impressionistic landscapes or um you know market scenes sometimes a little bit more cubist but then also getting later on to these like graphic like pulling from her graphic design and textile design these bright and colorful paintings with these overlaid designs and patterns Mm -hmm. so she was definitely someone who was not pinned down into one particular style or theme okay and that kind of like like it would have been easier for her to like stick to one medium and one subject but like she said, she's painting what inspires her and not going for what's making her money. Right. She's pushing herself. She is. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, at the time, she wasn't really – things collectively weren't in a position where she could monetize and make a lot of money from her art. Right. And with her teaching at Howard, you know, she was secure enough that she really could do what she wanted with her art and not have to worry about what her collectors would think because at the time – There were no collectors. Yeah. And that kind of unrelenting commitment to her work, it it does pay off. She might be old at that point, hmm. but society does catch up and is able to really fully appreciate her work and her contributions, which is nice because not all artists can say that. That's fair. Yeah. So while she's teaching, um, Lois was always going to challenge herself. She took classes at Harvard and also at Columbia University. And that's where your chemist Marie Daly from episode four went. And there she meets a Haitian artist, Louis Vernegard Pierre Noel, very well-respected graphic designer. For 20 years, they kept kind of in and out of touch. And by 1953, Lois's mom is all like, look, I love you. You need to get married. Oh, no. Well, Lois is in her 40s at this point, And her mom is worried, quote, one day you're going to have all these paintings around you and you're going to be very lonely in your studio. Oh. 
Yeah. I mean, I get where her mom's coming from. Alice was like, like, oh shit, okay, maybe you're right. And on one of her trips back to France, a man proposes and she ends up back in the States at the 48. It's, you know, 1953. She's packing up to go back to France to get married. And there's a knock on the door and it's Louis, the graphic designer. And by the end of the year, they're married. Oh, it's like a weird romantic. Yeah. Yeah. And they get, they get married at her best friend's house, Celine's in France. I threw up a little bit listening to that. I mean, it's sweet. It's sweet. (laughs) There's too much romantic things happening for me to be okay right now. (laughs) Uh, Now, they enjoyed 30 years together before he passed away in 1982. And over those years, he was extremely supportive of Lois and at times focusing more on her work than his own. And just as they were married, Lois received a commission from the president of Haiti, for a series of paintings on Haitian life. And that's how she spent their honeymoon. Doing the painting? Yeah. I was just like, yeah, I guess I can come. Oh, hey, by the way, I just got married. And the president was like, great, bring your husband. This will be your honeymoon. Aww. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it was a working honeymoon. She did the the paintings for him. Right. Um, she also filled in for the director of their, their Center for Art. And from this work, she had a solo exhibition that was later shown in D.C. And she uh, received an award for outstanding achievement in art from the First Lady of Haiti. Jesus. Yeah. Like, again, things just, they keep picking up. They keep snowballing. And, you know, she just, the appreciation for her just keeps growing and growing. Right. Took, took a bit. But it's it's getting there. And eventually it will actually reach the United States. I hope so. Now, from this first visit to Haiti, her art did loosen up a little bit. The colors reflected the vibrancy of the country, and it was a color palette that she would return to in every visit to the country she made after. Now, while she's traveling to France and Haiti, Lois receives a research grant to go travel to Africa, and over three months, she covers 11 countries. What? That's not enough time to see 11 countries. I mean, she was moving. She, I, This is a woman who kept busy. Now, the whole aim is to document the lives and the works of as many African artists as she can find. This becomes her Black visual art project. And her drive to see firsthand the artistic history of Africa, encouraged by the Negritude movement and her experience in Haiti, and the contemporary African artists of the day, it really puts her as a, a leading figure within the Black arts movement of the 1960s. Because all this work is kind of contributing back to artists in the United States. Right. Because she's going out and she's meeting these other artists and she's kind of connecting them and kind of, again, doing a shit ton of networking and exposing them to American audiences. Huh. And from her trips to Africa and her time in Haiti, I mean, she pulled all these various influences together in pieces that would, you know, unify the African diaspora in her art and in her networking. And paintings from this period reference, you know, the different cultures, uh, different masks and tribal traditions, you know, also pull from traditional African textile designs. And you can see pictures on the show notes. I mean, again, this is a woman who very much kept busy. With the civil rights movement and the gradually shifting attitudes on race, Lois does receive more art world attention in her later years. At the age of 68, in 1973, she has a retrospective of art at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. And she was the the museum's first solo show of an African-American artist. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and I mean, growing up in Boston, as a kid, she'd go there all the time. So how I can't imagine how rewarding that was to have that. Three years prior, a fellow Howard University or a faculty member approached her. You know, she knew that Lois had knew, known Mita, and she wanted to write about Mita for her PhD dissertation. Oh. And Lois was straight up like, you should write about me. Uh- <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, again, she was very forthcoming in representing herself and pushing herself and being an advocate for herself. I'm too fucking cool for you. Yeah, and this is a moment uh, she always she kept um, any publication stuff about her artwork or her show. She she would keep that. So she did have you know a good bit of that material saved. And the woman Tribota Haynes Benjamin was all like. Okay. And um, the result was the biography, The Life and Art of Lois Malu Jones. Um, it was published in 1994. Oh, Jesus. I mean, I like, I think brazen. I was like, holy shit. Like, there's no way in hell I think I would have been like, eh, you should write about me instead. I'm cooler. And I'm alive. Since 1937, uh, Lois was in over 50 shows, including a retrospective at Howard um, and a very meaningful celebration at the Kokorian Gallery of Art for her 80th birthday where the deputy and the chief curator issued a public apology for the museum's past racist policies fucking finally finally indeed and in 1996 the Krikorian school of art gave her an honorary doctorate of fine arts in recognition for her talent commitment and quote your perseverance in breaking down what separates us from another ha yeah from calling out everyone's fucking racist bullshit that's pretty much what she was doing now she was honored by foreign heads of state commemorated in 1980 by president jimmy carter she even hosted hillary and bill clinton at martha's vineyard in 1993 for an exhibition what yeah yeah again fucking networking well also while while bill clinton was president he liked to uh to do vacations there yeah now i mean that was in 1993 and that was after she had a fucking massive heart attack on her 84th birthday jesus christ and that was in 1989 yeah she needed like a triple bypass surgery the day after now that kind of slowed her down but i mean she kept working making art and traveling to haiti and she said quote i'll be painting until the day i die and should she have been on a plane with a heart like that i've i don't know I mean, I guess as long as overall you're in good health. Mm. Yeah. Now, I mean, she kept that sentiment of painting until the day she died uh, when she she passed away at her D.C. home at the age of 93 in 1998. Holy shit. Yeah. So, I mean, overall, uh, she pushed her way forward in a period where black women artists were dismissed. And on top of her own art, she developed black studies curricula, and that influenced waves of students coming after her. Mm. And at times... Her students reached easier art world recognition than her. And that was built in part of the work that she was putting in. Right. And I do think at times there was a bit of resentment. But she really facilitated like a more inclusive environment for these artists to be appreciated. And that was because of her own art, her own teaching, and her her international work. And that's why for this episode, she's my favorite feminist. (laughs) And that's it. That is Lois Malou Jones. (laughs) I love you. Thanks. I love you too. I am in so much pain. Uh, I took a class yesterday at the studio, and it was the strength and flexibility for aerialist class. Okay, that sounds like fun. Um, Yeah, it was fun. It was a great workout, but now every part of my body is very angry right now. Oh, you know, for me, day two is always the worst. Oh, this is just day one. My body is like, what did you do? Because it's been months. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Definitely. I know that feeling. It was bad. Holding on to a, like a steel hoop and then like push-ups or pull-ups. So many pull-ups on that hoop. Oh, I fucking hate those. And then like pikes and then like handstands, but you have to like do it on a ball. <laughs> it was rough, man. Mm-hmm. 
You know what else is rough? Yeah. What's that? Being a woman in the mid-1800s. Is there tuberculosis involved in the making of this story? Typhoid. Okay. All right. I mean, that's close enough. <laughs> tuberculosis, typhoid. Uh, uh, indeed. I am doing Elizabeth Blackwell. You ready for this? I'm so curious. I really, I know like one little fun fact about her, but that's it. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to what you have to share with us. She, she was a woman who got shit done. (laughs) Okay. You just have this like, I mean, you guys can't see. She's got like this shifty look on her face right now. Like she's about to tell me like this dirty joke. (laughs) (laughs) It's, I mean, like, I appreciate the work she did. Did. Well, I appreciate the medical work she did and some of oh, no. the other work she did, but not all of it. Was she like, like, like racist or something? Mm, was no. she one of those suffragists that was like, I want rights for women, but only white women? Mm, closer. Okay. More, uh... Eugenics. Is it eugenics? Oh, yeah. That was part of it. Okay. But that... I mean, I mean, obviously eugenics is awful. We've already touched on this, but it, it's more the the religious side specifically. Okay. And there's like this weird shifty thing with this chick way younger than her. Oh, oh yeah. Were they two friends living together? N- no, I wish they were. You'll you'll see. I'm so you'll see. intrigued. You're giving me such eyeball right now. I wish <laughs> you guys could see Milena and her face. <laughs> I don't okay. Um you'll see. You'll understand in a second. Okay. okay. All right, let's go. I'm curious. So she was born February third in eighteen twenty one in Bristol, England. Uh her dad was uh Samuel Blackwell, who was a sugar refiner, and her mom was Hannah, Hannah Blackwell. So she had two older siblings and six younger ones, and one of them, Emily, uh, was actually the third woman to get a medical degree in the United States. So Oh, shit. What's this? You actually know a little bit about someone's sibling? I know. It's crazy. Nice. I didn't bother to learn the boys' names because I'm me. (laughs) (laughs) Priorities. Priorities. But, yeah, she was the first one and Emily was the third one. So in 1832, so she's about 11, Samuel, the dad, lost his most profitable refinery to a fire. And they just were like, we're going to go to New York now. So they moved from England to New York. That is where dad got involved in abolitionism. So the family discussions like involve slavery, labor, women's rights, like just in general. And as a result, like, yeah, it was great. Yeah. yeah. So as a result, mom and dad, they didn't like beat their children. They just like (laughs) (laughs) they grounded them instead. (laughs) Uh, Jesus. Yeah, so they grounded them instead, but they also worked hard to make sure that their children's talents and education were cultivated as extensively as possible. Age 17, they all moved to Cincinnati, and unfortunately, Daddy passes away. I don't know from what, but he's dead. Tuberculosis. We'll say tuberculosis. Suddenly... It's always tuberculosis. (laughs) Suddenly, they have no source of income, and sisters... Anna, Marion, Elizabeth, uh, they started a school called the Cincinnati English and French Academy for Young Ladies. And it was literally just a form of income. There was nothing progressive about it. They weren't trying to, like, 
do some weird like progressive teachings or just like, look, give us money. We'll board your kids. We'll make sure they're not completely dumb. Actually, none of the sisters married. So the kind of people that they were were very like independent. And Elizabeth herself definitely like she would look down on people who tried to suit her. She would be like, this is just a stupid game and I want nothing to do with it. (laughs) You know, yeah, Lois... She was she was very dismissive of people too. Up until her mom made that comment, she was like, "Oh fuck." Yeah, no, she was just like, yeah. "I don't, I don't really have time for this. Go away, leave me alone." So, once she was established in the public eye, like later, later in her like, like after her education, she made a lot of important friends. So she knew and worked with people like Florence Nightingale, who she had a falling out with for some reason. I don't know. That's like. Yeah, that's like being like, yeah, I know Mother Teresa. She's a bit of a cunt. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't like her. Why? She like, overcooks her scrambled eggs. Apparently, like, after they had a falling out, whatever, like, um, Florence Nightingale would publish or talk about, she would be extremely critical of it. She'd be like, whatever. Like, what about this? Mm, that's a bestie breakup. I know. It's pretty bad. Um, Lady Byron, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who is an American abolitionist and a leading figure in women's rights movement. Like, so people like that. (laughs) Yeah, these are, these are some big names. Yeah. And then she also mentored like a number of really prominent women physicians who came after her and I'll name a few later. So back to the school, these ladies were also religious. So like social issues fell to the wayside while they were teaching at the school. And her sister Anna had kind of a crazy influence on her life. So because of Anna, Elizabeth converted to Episcopalianism. So in December of 1838, like it was, she was so into it that she was an active member of St. Paul's Episcopal Church. But then some guy like rolled into town. His name was William Henry Channing. And he got her attention. I guess he was just very like influential and just very like charismatic and he introduced the ideas of transcendentalism to blackwell it taught that divinity pervades all nature and humanity and its members held progressive views on feminism and communal living so basically god made us so we could be in his name but work towards progressive views so she liked this and she started attending the unitarian church people in cincinnati weren't as cool they weren't loving this new approach and they fought back so much that they stopped sending their kids to the academy that she and her sisters like helped. Yeah. They just yeah. stopped going to the academy. Um, and because of this, because of her views, because of her ties with the Unitarian Church, the school closed in 1842. So, you know. Oh, that must have been really hard. I hope her sisters like weren't pissed. I, you know, I, I didn't get that. But yeah, I imagine they were a little, little peeved. Maybe a little pissed. Yeah. Yeah, so she just, like, started teaching her own private pupils. So the people who would continue to send their kids to them, they would, like, give her money and she would take care of them. However, the Unitarian ideas that she was following sparked a renewed interest in education and reform for her, though. So she, like, sparked up and she was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Like, these are things that I care about that I want to work for. She pushed forward for her own self-improvement by studying art, writing, hanging in lectures, studying the religions of denominations that weren't hers. She, like, her attention to women's rights started emerging in the early 1840s, and she ended up participating in the Harrison political campaign of 1840. So William Henry Harrison of the Democratic Party, like our ninth president, Mm -hmm. she was, like, polling for them. That's pretty cool. Yeah, pretty awesome. 
Not like not so close to him, but like you know how people in Yeah, 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 just in general. Yeah. So with help of her sister Anna, because I mean they needed a new job. So in eighteen forty four, with the help of her sister Anna, Elizabeth actually got a teaching job that paid a thousand dollars a year in Henderson, Kentucky. But this is the first time she actually witnessed like slavery because she was in the Mm. south now and the first time that she really got to see what it was about that was like just too much for her so six months later she peaced out she was like i can't i can't do this so she goes back and then her sister anna is like okay maybe not that one but how about this one and she gets her a job in Asheville, north carolina teaching music while she's down there teaching one of her friends gets really sick and it's like terminal it's bad. And uh, she tells Blackwell that the whole ordeal would have been easier if her doctor was a woman. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So. I mean, like for gynecologists, like I exclusively go to women. Like I want a woman who understands my experience. Yeah. And I imagine it was like. um Same thing with my standard physicians, my primary care. Mm-hmm. So she like hears it and goes, yeah, like I, I feel that. And then she goes, maybe there should be women doctors. And then she had this idea to like go to medical school. She was going to take the job in Asheville so she could save up $3,000 she needed to go back to school. So a medical program to become a doctor was $3,000 back then, which obviously was a lot for inflation, but... It's still nowhere near what we have today. Exactly. You know, easily over a hundred grand. Jesus. So while she was there, she met the Reverend John Dixon. And before he was a clergyman, he was actually a doctor and he liked Elizabeth. He thought her decision to try to become a physician was pretty cool. So he lent her the medical books in his library to study. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. She spent her time while she was in Asheville reading books and also starting a, like, she actually started a slave Sunday school for, like, slaves down there. She, like... Wanted to teach them, but unfortunately that school closed down fairly soon. I guess nobody wanted to, like, rock the boat, make waves, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, that's hard when you're, like, one of two people willing to go and, like, everybody's like, you shouldn't you shouldn't be a part of that. Like, we don't do that. We don't want to get hurt. Yeah, so I imagine the fear of being able to educate yourself when you're not actually supposed to be, according to society, would be a huge deterrent to them, so... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it closed, unfortunately. And Elizabeth ended up moving on to the Reverend's brother's house. Uh, his name was Samuel Henry Dixon, and he was a doctor. So 1846, while she was staying with him, she started teaching at a boarding school in Charleston run by a Mrs. Dupre, which is an interesting name. And Elizabeth was also asking Samuel for help with going over letters so she could send him out to prospective medical schools that would take her. But nobody wanted her because she was a lady. And she just went, you know what? I'm going to pack my things and I'm going to go. Guess where she went? Uh, Where'd she go? Just just guess. Is it Columbia University in New York City? No. Oh, okay. 1847, she heads to Philadelphia. Good shit. We like Philadelphia. We love Philadelphia. (laughs) Uh, She goes there to personally cold call prospective schools. So she'll like... She showed up in person. That's ballsy as fuck. I love it. Yeah, it's pretty great. I I wish I, I honestly wish I had that kind of persistence. But she stayed with this guy named Dr. William Elder, and I'm guessing, like, I don't really know how she knew him. 
or this other guy that she studied with, like, she studied anatomy privately with another doctor named Jonathan M. Allen, and that sounds dirty, but I promise you it's not. (laughs) (laughs) She just, like, knew these guys, and I'm assuming it's, like, networking. So I'm assuming she, like, knew the Dixon brothers, and then they, like, reached out to their other friends, and they were like, you need to talk to her. You need to teach her. She's really smart. Let her, let her hang out. So I'm, I'm gonna go with that's probably what happened. All the while, while she's living at Dr. L, and she's studying with Dr. Allen. She's attempting to get accepted to literally any of the 10 billion medical schools in Philadelphia. So no one wanted her. She got turned down by 12 different schools. Ooh. Yeah. They're like, nah, we're good. People to go, like, people actually told her to go to another country, most likely Paris, yeah, or just like yeah. pull a Mulan and dress like a man. I, I mean, I've got pretty thick eyebrows. <laughs> you can make it happen. I, and, yeah, my breasts are fairly small, so you know what? I'd consider it. Uh, but yeah, like they just started to say this like ridiculous stuff, like just the most ridiculous ideas. And part of it was because they thought she was too dumb to actually do this. And the other part was actually because they were threatened. They were like, she's probably going to be like, if she does do this, she could very easily rise up and like get us all out of a job. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a recurring theme, the whole men against women kind of thing. Threatened by things you don't understand. But finally, finally, in 1847, she gets accepted. Holy shit, we're at. Yeah, wait for it. It was called Geneva Medical College. It's now called Hobart College. So what had happened was the administration could not make their own decision, apparently. So they stood in front of a class of like 150 plus men who were already in the program and then they had them vote. Oh, okay. Yeah, they had them vote. And if one man, just one, said no thank you, she wasn't allowed in. And they decided as a joke, because they didn't think it was going to happen, to all go, yeah, you can let her in. Joke's on them. (laughs) She fucking showed up. She fucking showed up. <laughs> yeah, that's the one little tidbit about her that I do know. Everyone was yeah. like, LOL, sure, let's admit this woman to our doctor program, like WTF. And she's like, okay, I'd like my degree, please. <laughs> With honors, please, and thank you. Oh, I'm also walking in graduation, thank you. Oh, Jesus. Uh, so between, yeah, they were all like, what is going on? And between those semesters, she would go back to Philly, hang out with her, with her buddies that she used to live with. And then she applied for internships for clinical experience. And she really didn't get a lot of feedback. The only time she was like, the only time they let her come in was the, actually the Blackley Almhouse for the poor. Okay. Yeah. And she wasn't immediately accepted in. They were like, whatever, you can come in. But they didn't really, like, immediately love her. So she had to work for it. And some physicians would even just refuse to teach her and walk out. But she continued to work through. And she was particularly interested in helping the people afflicted with typhus. So much so that her thesis was on it. Like, the one that got her her doctorate. And typhus, that's also known as typhoid fever, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Does that affect the lungs? Bacterial disease spread through contaminated food and water or close contact. Okay. Yeah. She graduated on January 23rd, 1849 as the first woman in the United States to achieve a medical degree. And people were actually like, 
you know, go Elizabeth. Woo. Like the press wrote great things about her. And then the dean actually bowed to her. Why? Um, when he gave over the the diploma, he was like, for you. Yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> There's no bottle of champagne big enough for that type of celebration. Nothing. Like, Not even close. Like, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> but guess what? She dies shortly after, and that is the end of our story. No, it just wasn't enough for her. Good. I like yeah. a woman with ambition. <laughs> she decided to keep learning, but this time she went to Europe. And uh, this was in April of 1849, but no hospitals took her in as studying doctor because of her gender. Ugh. So, rather, la mertonite. I probably fucked that up. That's French. It's it's the maternity, like, it's it's basically a woman's hospital. Okay. They let her come study as a student midwife, um, which is annoying because you literally just became a doctor and now I have to be a midwife. Like, there's nothing wrong with being a midwife. Midwifery is a, is a noble profession and it's really hard to do. But you just became a doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're shoving you in a traditional kind of mm-hmm. medical opportunity that, you know, has been offered yeah. to women. Yeah. But while she was there, she was working on an infant who had basically neonatal conjunctivitis. What what what's conjunctivitis? Oh, bacteria builds up in your eye. Oh, it's pink eye. Oh, the little booger had pink eye. Yeah, but I guess it wasn't as easily like it's a little more serious with with infants, but like she got it. And also, like, before antibiotics. Yeah, and pen- yeah, yeah, Penicillin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So while she was treating this guy, she accidentally squirted some contaminated solution into her eye and contracted it. Yeah, that's pink eye for you. Okay. Mm-hmm. And because it was in the 1800s, she lost sight in her eye and it had to be removed. Oh, oh my God. What? Does she get a badass eye patch afterwards? Yeah, I didn't see an eye patch. She might have gotten a glass eye. Oh, but yeah, that, that makes more sense. But still, oh, God, that fucking sucks. <laughs> I know. Ugh. Yeah, it's bad. Like, this is what happens when antibiotics don't exist. She wanted to be a surgeon, but obviously that was not a thing anymore, which was very sad. So in 1850, after she recovered from it, she went to study at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, and she attended James Paget's lectures. So James Paget was, quote, I'm quoting this straight out of Wikipedia, an English surgeon and pathologist who is best remembered for naming Paget's disease and who is considered together with Rudolf Virchow as one of the founders of scientific medical pathology. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and Paget's disease is a condition involving a cellular remodeling and deformity of bones. So okay. just... She kept meeting resistance during clinical observations there. So she was just like, I'm going back to America. And in 1851, she moved to New York City. So here she's no longer studying. She's like, I'm going to start practicing now. I'm done. I have I have a degree. I'm going to start doing this now. And she didn't originally have a lot of patients. So people thought women doctors were all abortionists. Okay. All right. They just, they just assumed that that was a thing that women wanted to do. She began delivering lectures. And she published something called The Laws of Life with Special Reference to the Physical Education of Girls, which was her first work. And it was a volume about the physical and mental development of girls that concerned itself with the preparation of young women for motherhood. Oh, nice. Yeah. In 
and that's because she couldn't get any like patients so she's like i might as well just pop like publish a piece you know do yeah. like, research instead mm-hmm. 1853 she meets a lady named marie zakrzowska she's polish elizabeth mentors her because marie wants to be a doctor and eventually marie becomes a doctor in 1857 uh she and elizabeth and elizabeth's sister emily who's also a doctor start up the new york infirmary for indigent women and children so women were on the board they were the physicians it was a nurses training facility it was all women run and it Whoa. took right it was crazy it also took yeah. both in like inpatients and outpatients so they were covering everything and because of that patients started pouring in because i'd like to equate it as like getting a female lift driver yeah you just you know anyone who who looks like you they're gonna understand what you're going through how you're feeling you know parts you of your body feel, that you're feeling yeah yeah you suddenly feel so much safer you're like gee when i talk to you about my vagina you understand because you also happen to have a vagina <laughs> <laughs> You're one of the 50% of the population that also has a vagina. So it's around this time. This is where things get weird. 1856, Blackwell adopted a little girl who was slightly deaf named Kitty Berry. Okay. She was eight, and she adopted her partially because she was alone. The other part was because she needed someone to help her clean her house. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I mean, child raising in the 19th century was not all warm and fuzzy. Nope. Not even close. Yeah. But she educated her, put her through gymnastics classes so she could trial out the things she wrote in the Laws of Life publication, the one about girls growing up, the one that she published in 1852. Okay. Yeah. And then she, like, she took care of her, but also she never allowed Kitty to make friends or have interests. And Kitty ended up following Elizabeth around the world like a puppy dog across continents. Oh. <laughs> yep. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get back to her in a second. Okay. 1858, Elizabeth would travel back and forth to Europe to create a sister clinic for the infirmary that she did in New York City. So something like that, but in, uh, in Europe. Oh, nice. Yeah, but it, it unfortunately fell through. Ugh. Um, yeah. So she was... Also able to become the first woman to have her name entered in the General Medical Council's medical register because of a law that recognized foreign doctors. So she may not have started the infirmary, but she's like, I'm in this listing, damn it. Yes. Professionally recognized. Exactly. 1861 to 1865, she travels back to the U.S. because the Civil War broke out. And she wanted to help out. So she sides with the North, obviously. She's an abolitionist. And she and her sister, Emily, become nurses for the war efforts. But because of their reputation, some doctors refuse to work with them. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, so that's cool. Whatever. So because of that, like, kind of like that snubbing, 
She was kind of already feeling like, like, why am I here? What's happening? But in 1866, a year after the Civil War ended, about 7,000 patients were being treated by the New York infirmary, infirmary, which she helped start. So she was like torn. She's like, I want to go to Europe, but I'm here. In 1868, the women physicians associated with the Failed Sister Project in Europe started a medical school that would actually take Blackwell's idea of having a more extensive training program for doctors and run with it. So the program she went through was two years. She was closer to the four-year model, the one that she wanted, which is one that we see all over the world now. Yeah. But she's still feeling, like, iffy about being in the United States. And then her and Emily, her sister Emily, they start, they get into a fight. They get falling out. I don't know what they're fighting about. But they started fighting, and she was just like, I need to leave. I'm done. So she takes Kitty, and they go to Europe to live. Mm -hmm. She broadens her interests at this point. So she co-founded the National Health Society in 1871, and in 1874, she opens the London Medical School for Women with a student from the New York Infirmary. The student's name was Sophia Jex Blake. They butted heads a lot, but people liked Sophia more, so eventually Elizabeth took back seat as a lecturer in midwifery, and she eventually resigned in 1877. But after she resigned there, she did not return to medicine. She instead kicked her social reform interests into overdrive. But, like, in that weird, I think science is the product of God and should be used in, to serve him way. Okay. I mean, I mean, shit, if that's what it takes, why not? I mean, eh. <laughs> Because of that inability to separate church from, you know, science, Yeah. Um, she kind of was into things that weren't helpful and kind of threw roadblocks into things so okay all of her causes work towards a more moral perfection in the society as a whole so the long list includes number one sexual purity (sighs) yep i'm already done i've already checked out at this point we're out we're (laughs) out sorry (laughs) done hygiene education preventative medicine which you all know i love Sanitation, we need eugenics, can go very far away in a corner. Never, don't, don't come back out. Family planning, women's rights, which, yes, we love. Christian socialism, which is based off the teachings of Jesus. So whatever Jesus said in the New Testament, that's what you're listening to. Associationism, based upon a belief in the inevitability of communal associations of people who worked and lived together as part of the human future. So working together, which we, that's cool, whatever. It's a little like 1984. Yeah. I imagine across like work and class barriers, that kind of communal sense between everyone. Yeah. Which, you know, that, that's not awful. We can, we can deal with that. Yeah. Um, medical ethics, which is yes, we need. And then anti-vivisection, which essentially is, she did not want to use Live animals for scientific purposes, which I get. Yeah, no, I can totally, I can get behind that. Yeah. So she also contributed monetarily to two prospective utopian communities called Starnthwaite and Hadley. I was really hoping you'd say the Oneida community. Okay. Oh, I'm not no. familiar with those guys. <laughs> uh, and then the reason that earlier you were talking about Planned Parenthood was because she would have hated Margaret Sanger. Contraceptives were not okay at all. She only endorsed what? the rhythm method. Ugh. And for those of you who don't know, the rhythm method is like paying attention when you're ovulating, basically. Uh, the Contagious Diseases Acts that were 
passed. To okay. her, they were obviously pseudo-legislation for the acceptance of prostitution. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, like, they were giving people the right to, like, have sex because people were fighting to work against the contagious diseases instead of keeping women in their pants. Okay. So, she... This is when things get a little weird. She got into this whole holier-than-thou standoff with a guy named Alfred Sachs, and he didn't quite know it was a standoff. So he got to know her and Kitty, and he was, like, in love with Elizabeth. Kitty was in love with Alfred and really jealous of Elizabeth at that point. I think Elizabeth was, like, in her 50s, and Kitty was, like, in her 20s. Mm -hmm. Like, 28, like our age. And Elizabeth was, like, in, in, in her head... She was basically like, you live a life in, of debauchery. Let me reform you, please. So she would go back and forth, send letters, correspondence, all that good thing. And I think Alfred just continued because he just was, like, in love with her. And the conversations she had with him were used in her counsel to parents on the moral education of the children. And this was an essay arguing against the Contagious Diseases Act. In it, she held women equally responsible for their passions. The popular belief was that women had zero lust, but she was like... Nope, we're horny, and we're responsible to never act on it unless it's a good Christian way. So her essay was rejected multiple times by publishers because of that particular controversial thought, which was, women are horny. Once again, women, <laughs> they're horny. Ugh. But the minute she was able to publish it, the correspondence with Alfred stopped. She got what she wanted. She was able to publish a piece. And she, like, toyed with this dude. Oh, okay. Yeah. 1895, she published pioneer work on in opening the medical profession to women, uh, which was another piece she did, but she it didn't sell well, so she just decided to travel instead. She's like, whatever, I'm done. She, like, putted around, but while holidaying in Scotland, she fell down a flight of stairs and was almost completely left disabled. Oof. Yeah. And then from that point to 1910, she was just kind of, like, not mobile. But 1910, she suffers a stroke and passes away. So Blackwell, Elizabeth, was buried in the churchyard of the St. Mun's Parish Church in Scotland. And Kitty, if you're wondering what happened to her, turns out Elizabeth was a magnet of a woman. Kitty moved into the Blackwell estate and took on the Blackwell name in 1920. I mean, like, it sounds like she raised her as her daughter. Right. Ulterior motives, but, I mean, she was family. She called Elizabeth her true love while on her deathbed in 1930. And she straight up asked to be buried with Elizabeth Ashes. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just kind of like, you have this daughter figure that's, like, in love with you. And it's I feel like part of it's kind of love and the other part is, like, Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Just, like, reverence for her. I I mean, I just, I mean, she wasn't allowed to make friends. I don't know. Like, part of me is like, this could have gone a little bit healthier. But No, no, I, I get it. I mean, like, when I was researching Beatrix Potter, like, her parents as an upper-class wealthy English family, like, culturally in the late 1800s, like, she, her and her brother weren't allowed to make friends. That yeah, was like, not something you did. I just don't understand why that's something that people like I don't understand the point of that how you could rear children without wanting them to have the social skills to to grow up and be like successful in life 
Especially when society was all about, like, saving face back then. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of outdated things that, fortunately, we don't subscribe to these days. But, yeah, I know that definitely sounds like an interesting dynamic between Kitty and Elizabeth. Yeah. And, like, part of me is, like, like how much did Kitty really love Elizabeth? You know what I mean? Like... Okay, is there is there a book I can read about them? Because it's, someone must have written something extensive on that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I don't know the book, but I'm sure you could tell me. <laughs> All right, I'll have to do some digging and see what I can find. And if I find it, I will put it on the show. No. Sounds great, because you know I don't have time to read books, so. You got to get that library account with those audiobooks. Oh, my God, I didn't know. Guys, if you didn't know, this is something I learned on Mother's Day. I feel like a complete idiot. I have too many jobs and too many projects, and I spread myself way too thin, and I don't have time to read, but I used to read all the time, as we covered a couple of episodes ago. So I've been missing reading, and I wanted to start audiobooks, but also, like, I don't have money for audiobooks. And Megan was like, she was over, she was making my mom, like, brunch, and she was like, you know what, you can just go to the library, they have tons of audiobooks. And I was like, what? Like, ones that are, like, on a CD or, like, a tape? And she was like, no, you just download them through an app. And I was like, what? What year is this? (sighs) It's good shit. You gotta support your local library. Support your local library. Yeah. By signing up, getting an account, and never stepping foot in that local library again, because you can download Overdrive or Libby <laughs> and get that shit on your phone, be it ebooks or audiobooks, also available for Kindle. This episode brought to you by your local library. But every download counts. That's how they stay open. Yeah, yeah, I don't know how the numbers work, but um, yeah, it's good shit. So I'll see if I can find anything on Kitty and Elizabeth, because that sounds like a really interesting dynamic between the a two of them great read yeah i just don't I, I wish i had time to like yeah no i get it i get it that's that's yeah. life it gets in the way all right sweet milana if if people want to see some of the stuff we've talked about and check out the show notes and learn more about us where can they go so we have a website it is my we are on instagram and facebook as my you can also listen to us on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and iTunes. If you're listening on iTunes, please go ahead, feel free to rate and subscribe and definitely leave a comment below. Let us know, guys, what's your favorite book or book series, like, ever? Let us know, because I need a reading list and Megan can't get enough books either, so we can't wait to hear from you. And again, if you made it this far, God bless you. We appreciate you guys. We really do from... Alabama to Australia. It means a lot. (laughs) Until next time, have a good one, guys. Bye. Bye.